Hello, and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they're in need of a legal remedy. I'm Anthony Pereira, and I'm a program coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of uh, the Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. So today we're going to be talking about pro bono coordination. Um, we're going to be pulling back the curtain a little bit to show you um, what it really takes to coordinate an entire pro bono program. We will explore how these programs enhance access to justice for individuals who would not have any legal representation or advice without these pro bono programs. We will also consider where there is additional room for growth regarding pro bono programming in Denver, Colorado, and the broader community. So this episode of Stairway to AJJ is going to be a bit different um, because we are today's guests. Uh, it's going to be Mia and I. So let's just jump right in to our interview. Anthony grew up in the Seattle area, but he completed his undergraduate degrees in political science and business administration at Chapman University in Orange, California. Anthony went to law school across the country at American University in Washington, D.C. He interned with Colorado Legal Services in their intake division while studying to take the bar. He also worked in private practice handling family law cases. However, most of his experience has been with Metro Volunteer Lawyers, where he has been for four years. Anthony, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got here? And what I mean is, what was your path um, to working for MVL and how did you find your niche there? Yeah, when I went to law school, I never thought I'd do public service necessarily. Um, I did go to law school to help people, and that was the concept behind going to law school, and that was a way that I thought I could help people, um, not even thinking about public service. So I started with intern, interning um, with Metro Volunteer Lawyers. That turned into a scholarship, a Rivera Scholar, and then Allegretti Fellow, and then um, Program attorney and then now I'm a Conover fellow. So it's just been different jobs through throughout while I was working at Metro Volunteer Lawyers. And do you have any advice for young lawyers who are wanting to do public interest work? If you have a particular interest in public interest work, definitely pursue that. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. Um, a lot of times you can go through the Bar Association, the Colorado or Denver Bar Association. And if you reach out to anyone in public service work, I'm sure they can introduce you to someone else in public service work if it's not the, the right fit for you, because um, there's a lot of options out there. All right. And let's let our listeners get to know us a little better since we're pulling back the curtain. Anthony, what do you like to do in your free time? So I have two dogs. I spend a lot of time with them, um, walking them and, and playing with them. And then this is our first year trying to figure out how to garden. Um, so that's that's been a fun experiment. We're, we're experimenting with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So enough about me, Mia. Let's talk about you for a little bit. Um, so Mia grew up in Centennial, Colorado, uh, where as a good Coloradan, she learned to love the outdoors. She went to Northern Arizona University, where she studied philosophy and psychology. After returning to Colorado, uh, she, like her brother, attended the University of Denver for law school. And then after graduating, uh, she clerked for the Honorable Morris Hoffman in the Denver uh, District Court. So Mia took a brief hiatus um, from a hike from Maine to Massachusetts uh, on the Appalachian Trail. Um, It completed a lifelong dream of hers and Mia, uh, we definitely need to talk about that, maybe off air, about how that trip went. Um, but upon returning to Colorado, she began working as a respondent parent counsel representing parents in DNN cases. Uh, from there, she went on to work at the Mental Health Colorado, uh, where she had the opportunity to travel across Colorado, uh, learning about behavioral health systems and advocating for policy change as well. Mia came to the CBA March of 2020, um, right at the start of the pandemic, and has learned to adapt, learned to adapt to whatever came her, comes her way. So I know that you found a good public interest community at law school. So how do you be, feel about finding that community? Yeah, I feel like that was such a blessing, um, meeting other law students who are really dedicated to access to justice, racial justice, human rights, 
um, and really feeling like change was possible, you know, knowing that there were these like mo- like-minded young law students around me. And one of the cool things, Anthony, is that some of those very people who I met in law school now volunteer in some of the programs I work in. So it uh, it's really come full circle and I hope continue well in the, into the future. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. So what about non-work? What do you do outside of um, nine to five? Yeah, so a lot of people might think of this as work, but I love to run. Um, So I do that. And I also love baking. Awesome. Let's turn to the meat of our interview. Um, This is a question we ask everyone. So Anthony, in a sentence or two, what does access to justice mean to you? So we say this in our intro where the definition, and I kind of like the definition, that's why we use it, but we see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they need a legal remedy. And if you break that down, it's kind of like evening the playing field and and providing um, a more even playing field when accessing, going to court or avoiding having to go to court. So I, th- I think it's a little, it's a broader definition and it's a very open definition, but I think there's a lot of access to justice efforts out there. So Mia, how about you in a sentence or two, what does uh, access to justice mean to you? Well, I'm going to run a little long, but I think access to justice means something that's systemic and that this is a structural issue. Um, it's so much more than ensuring people have their day in court because the reality is that many folks can't even get through the courthouse doors. They don't even know how to take the first step towards seeking a legal remedy. And I think this stems from our siloed approach to human services in this state and in this country. I know when I'm working with folks um, receiving other services from other organizations, I only look at their legal problem. I don't consider the other barriers that are really hampering them from succeeding in their case. And these are factors like the fact that they're unhoused, the fact that they're living in poverty, um, the fact that they're being racially profiled, right? Like the only reason we would worry about those is for their legal ramifications, but those have human impacts. So I think going forward, equity really needs to be the driving force behind access to justice efforts, and that we need to take a more holistic approach to helping people rather than just dealing with a specific discrete legal issue. Yeah, a lot of um, family medicine doctors do a holistic approach and, and do other things besides just treat the disease um, or what's bothering you. Um, so I think us as a legal profession can look at that and, and take a more holistic approach to our clients mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and jump into what you and I actually do. We, we have these titles, and I bet people are wondering what that actually means. So can you describe the program that you coordinate, Anthony? Yeah, so the program I coordinate is called Family Law Unbundled. Um, it's a, I'm also a Conover fellow. fellow. Uh, Jerry Conover has um, graciously, graciously donated to Metro Volunteer Lawyers um, in order for us to develop this program. In a nutshell, we assist pro se parties um, with their family law pre-decree legal issues. Um, It's limited scope representation or limited scope assistance uh, with an emphasis on early resolution and mediation. Um, And how does your program address access to justice issues? So I view MBL and I view my program as serving two communities. Um, One is the legal community by providing them opportunities to give back, by providing them opportunities to um, donate their time, and in an easy way for them to do that as well. And then the other community that we serve at Metro Volunteer Lawyers is people below a certain level of income, so the poor. So by serving these two communities um, is how we're addressing the access to justice gap. Metro Volunteer Lawyers saw a gap because we had a family law court program, which is meant for uncontested, relatively simple divorces. And then we had our full referral program, which is an attorney takes on the case. But there's a big gap in between that where people need some legal advice or some legal assistance. Or if their hearing is in two weeks, um, we're not going to be able to find an attorney in time, but let's get them to meet with a volunteer attorney to help them prepare for that. Mm-hmm. So we still have the full referral program and we still have the uncontested program, but this is filling in that gap. Okay. So you've talked about the full referral um, and the unbundled, um, and I guess there's also the, the limited. What factors uh, do you consider in making the determination which program's right for someone? The timing of, of a case. Um, if we don't have much time, we're not going to find a full referral. Our uncontested one, they have to have not filed. 
So that's a big factor as well. Um, the complexity of the case, is there domestic violence? Is there a lot of property? Is there a pension that they have to deal with? A lot of our cases don't have those things because I'm, we're only helping people below a certain level of income um, and assets. But those are the kinds of things that we consider in addition to the client itself which, and their capacity and their ability to understand. Are there any ethical concerns with unbundling or limited scope representation? We do have ethical concerns. And with all of our clinics, we have the attorneys run conflicts checks. In walking clinics, you can not necessarily have to run a conflicts check unless you meet with the person you realize that there is an actual conflict, but you don't know what's coming in the door. But because our attorneys get to be prepared to meet with these um, clients specifically, they run conflicts checks before I send them information about the case. Um, and that's really... Uh, helped government agencies like the attorney general's office and other people being willing to volunteer with us mm-hmm. is because we make sure that we are as ethical as possible and we do what we can on our end to before we even send the case off to um, a, a volunteer. And what are the limitations of this program? So right now it's modeled after kind of a clinical approach where um, volunteers provide like an hour consultation. Sometimes they'll do like 11B drafting as well, um, where you where you ghostwrite a, a motion for someone. But what I want to see this program develop into is more and more limited scope representation, where you take a part of a case. I'll help you out through mediation or I'll help you for this motion or something like that. Um, so that's kind of what I'm hoping that this program um, develops into more and more. And Mia... Enough about my program, Family Law Unbundled. I could talk about that for the full hour, um, but I want our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Uh, and I know that you run and manage a laundry list of, of programs at the CBA. Um, so I'm just going to have you describe each one, rapid fire, 30 seconds. You ready? Uh, so I'm going to take a little longer than 30 seconds on this first one, but you, you can time <laughs> me after that. <laughs> All right. What's going on with the Federal Pro Se Clinic and what's that all about? Yeah, so the Federal Pro Se Clinics um, include actually two clinics, the original Federal Pro Se Clinic and the new Bankruptcy Clinic. So the Federal Pro Se Clinic is a limited scope clinic that serves pro se litigants who have a case in the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado or litigants who are exploring whether they want to file in the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado. The attorneys in the clinic and our fabulous volunteers hold up to one hour long appointments with litigants during which time we provide legal advice about their case. Procedural advice is really what our specialty is, but if we can give them substantive advice, we do that as well. Many of our litigants come back many, many times um, throughout the life cycle of their case. Um, Federal cases usually last two to three years, so we see some of these folks many times. Currently, we're doing appointments via phone or Zoom, but we're excited to get back in person, hopefully in the fall. Primarily, we work with plaintiffs, um, but if defendants find us, we'll also help them out as well. Hmm. About 30 to 40% of our cases are employment discrimination, approximately another 30% are civil rights cases, and then we get a smattering of all other types of cases. Um, So we really see the the full scope of um, federal civil cases. Our volunteers help out with conducting the appointments. We have our volunteers run a conflicts check, similar to you, Anthony, um, and then we provide them with a synopsis of the case prepared by clinic staff. Um, Our volunteers typically do two one-hour appointments for one shift, and some of our volunteers come every month. Um, Other volunteers we may see once a year and everything in between. In addition to our volunteers, the attorneys in the clinic also provide um, legal advice to our litigants. So that is the Federal Pro Se Clinic. Um, And then also under the Federal Pro Se Clinic's umbrella is a bankruptcy clinic, which is rather new. It's modeled off of the Federal Pro Se Clinic, so it's also limited scope representation. Um, In that one, litigants meet with Matt Skeen, our bankruptcy attorney, who you may remember from last month's episode. Those meetings also last for up to an hour, and the bankruptcy clinic currently serves litigants filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. 
Um, we hope to expand into chapter 13s as well, and we aspire to cultivate an attorney volunteer program for the bankruptcy clinic, but currently bankruptcy clinic um, does not utilize volunteers. Um, and when we say limited scope, we mean something a little different than I think you do, Anthony. Okay. Um, and, and we mean that we're not taking on full representation. Um, the federal court and the federal district court for the District of Colorado has some different rules than the state rules. And so we're much more limited in what we can do. For example, a big distinction is we cannot draft. So uh, um, we could never, you know, go straight or do anything like that. Um, but we can give legal advice. So we, we do what we can. <laughs> so you avoid the level, uh, the rule 11B drafting, um, but you still give some good legal advice about procedure and the law, which is wonderful. Yeah. All right. So you got federal pro se, you got the bankruptcy clinic. Um, how about the appellate pro bono program? Yeah. So the next one is the appellate pro bono program. And this is um, a well-established program that does full referrals for individuals with cases before the Colorado Court of Appeals or the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, a screening committee of attorney volunteers determines which cases will be accepted. If an individual's case is accepted, they're matched with a volunteer who then just takes on the case going forward. Um, when a case is not accepted, the program always endeavors to provide referrals to those individuals so that they have other resources to turn to. And this program has been so successful that um, there's a strong desire to expand um, on that work. And um, a, a dedicated group of appellate volunteers is working on creating a clinic. Um, and so this would also be limited scope appellate advice. Um, the specifics of the clinic are still being ironed out but they hope to have the clinic up and running by September. Awesome. Federal Pro Se Clinic, Bankruptcy Clinic, Appellate Pro Bono Program, which is full rep. Uh, Appellate Pro Bono Clinic is another one that you are working on. Um, you also do a legal fee arbitration program. Yes, so the Legal Fee Arbitration Committee is another longstanding committee um, that helps um, arbitrate fee disputes disputes between attorneys and clients. Um, in cases where both sides agree, both the attorney and client agree to use the CBA's legal fee arbitration committee, we provide an arbiter or hearing officer um, who is a volunteer from the committee. That person will set a hearing date. Um, both sides will present you know, their their side of the situation and submit any evidence. From there, the hearing officer writes a recommendation that's reviewed by the committee, and then an award is issued either, you know, for the attorney or client or, you know, it's a draw. No one gets um, any award. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more, not about each program, but about how each program addresses access to justice? Yeah, I'd like to take this um, first in looking at those limited scope programs. So let's consider the federal pro se uh, clinic, for example. Over the last 15 years, about 30% of cases before the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado are pro se. So that's a, a very large minority of cases, right? These are people who don't have an attorney. Now, the vast majority of those cases are prisoner cases, which the federal pro se clinic does not handle. Nonetheless, hundreds of litigants every year pursue cases in federal court without the assistance of an attorney. And while we do not provide full representation, our attorneys do provide guidance, legal advice, and frankly, someone in our litigants corner, you know, they can feel very isolated and very alone. And so having someone, you know, who's rooting for them helps. But these limited scope programs operate under the idea that some advice is better than no advice. Um, and from what I see, I, th I think that holds true. But I also think we play a role in empowering litigants to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. While empowerment is not traditional ATJ work, I think it serves an access to justice function. The reality currently is that not every person with a case has an attorney to represent them. But if we can empower litigants to learn and begin to understand the legal system themselves, they can provide themselves access to justice. So perhaps self-service is also better than no service. It's the uh, teach a man to fish as opposed to give a man a fish approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, so while that is a great approach, um, I'll turn now to the full representation programs. And I would say they're the gold standard, right? If we could give everybody an attorney, um, I think we might discuss this a little more later on, but that would probably be a good idea. Um, so yeah, the full representation is the quintessential remedy to access to justice issues. I think it's a very powerful way to address access to justice concerns. However, the limitations of this approach is that we don't have enough attorneys to do pro bono work for everybody who needs an attorney. Um, and so we just can help a larger volume of people with um, limited scope as opposed to full representation. Um, I'll finally take a quick look at legal fee arbitration. Um, it's, it's a unique but important niche, I think. Um, and so I think that it addresses access to justice because attorneys need to be paid for their work in order to continue offering their services, right? And having attorneys is obviously an access to justice um, contributes to access to justice. However, clients need to receive the services they paid for. So, you know, this program also is a check on attorneys making sure that they're being honest. And so I think this program helps find just resolutions to these disputes and aims to ensure that neither par party um, is un unjustly enriched. Um, so I think that's how all these programs um, relate to access to justice. Awesome. Thank you so much for the uh overview. I know you run other programs as well in, in like Modern Law Practice Initiative and other things at the CBA. Um, but those are the pro bono programs and such that you run, which is a great, um, give us our listeners a great idea of what the, what to to know about us. Yeah. Yeah. A taste of the scope of what what we have with regard to programming. So maybe like a little bit of a more philosophical question now, Anthony. Um, if you had unlimited resources, what would you do to improve or enhance your program? Um, I like this question a lot, actually, because it's, it makes you think about what is a resource. Um, Metro Volunteer Lawyers is only good as its volunteers. So I think volunteers are our biggest resource. So with unlimited volunteers, I'd be able to help a lot more people. Uh, additional time is another big resource that, that I'm always seeming to run out of. So I reach out to each of the pro se litigants by phone, by email, by letter. Um, and I wish I had more time to follow through with them a couple more times just to be sure that they are getting my messages and, and are able to attend these clinics. Um, and I could schedule these appointments in clinics around their schedules would be a wonderful thing, although that'd be a lot of work as well. But you said unlimited resources. Exactly. Um, so talking about unlimited resources for you, how would you, um, what would you do with unlimited resources? Yeah, so I'll think about it um, in the federal pro se clinic. I think more staff attorneys would be great. We have uh, one full-time attorney, myself, um, and then a paralegal and interns, but you know, just having more people who could answer legal questions and give legal advice uh, would be so helpful because it's not always an hour long appointment, right? Sometimes people need legal advice. It really is just like a 10 minute question, but if you're not an attorney, you can't, you can't give that advice. Mm -hmm. I think also um, I would love to have more, whether it's flyers or, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it would look, but more paperwork to give to people that kind of help them understand some basic legal concepts, you know, service is an issue that we run into time and time and time again, that can be really tricky depending on who your defendants are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if we just had some materials that we could share with folks, and we do have some around service, but you know, there's a number of issues, I think that would be so fantastic. I think kind of like my big reach magic wand thing would be cultivating relationships with other organizations that are kind of auxiliary to the law, but could really, really help our litigants. So um, many of our litigants are unhoused, you know, and I know that if that housing piece could fall into place for them, then pursuing their case would be a lot easier, you know? Um, so that would be my big magic wand wish. <laughs> yeah, taking the holistic approach yeah. as well. So it, yeah. It's hard to worry about your divorce that you have pending when you don't have an ID and you can't get a job and things like that. I I, yeah. I see that a lot as well, I understand. Um. So you work with volunteers all the time. Mm -hmm. Why do attorneys tend to volunteer, do you think? So 
I've read reports and I've done surveys to my um, volunteers as well. Um, and the number one that volunteers volunteer that they give their time is because they want to give back to the community. They want to, to serve people and they want to help people. Um, so I try and capitalize on that as much as possible um, in my recruitment efforts and in other efforts and things like that is because I, I see that people want to give back. I think people, um, at least some of my volunteers, definitely um, are good people and they, they like helping people. How about you? I know you work with volunteers, especially at the Federal Pro Se Clinic. Why do um, they tend to volunteer with, with your programs? Yeah. So I think that a lot of the volunteers with the Federal Pro Se Clinic also want to give back, um, but they also like the limited scope nature of the program so that they don't have to commit to a whole case or even like a whole section of a case, you know, settlement um, or something like that. You know, they, they know what they're committing to, and that's two hours and maybe some prep time, you know, ahead of time. In appellate pro bono, um, and this is totally anecdotal, I don't know if this is, you know, a a bigger trend (laughs) than what I've seen with the last few uh, volunteer applications, but they're either new attorneys or attorneys who are new to Colorado and want, you know, want to get their feet wet. They want to get some experience um, in appeals without, I don't know, maybe with the support of the program around them. So that's another reason I see people volunteering. So what qualities make a great volunteer? I imagine this varies quite a bit program to program. So I'm going to speak from um, Federal Pro Se, which is, you know, these these hour-long appointments. And there, I think, you know, the best volunteers know how to listen. Um, mm-hmm. I think allowing litigants to feel heard is actually a great service, but also know when to jump in <laughs> and kind of give someone the advice they need to hear, whether that's, you know, your statute of limitations is running out or you need, you need to get this filed, you know, by next Monday. Um, so I think it's, it's um, that balance between listening and conveying the, the information that's really important. And then um, I guess my third thing I would say is just adaptability. You know, you might come in and think that you're going to be talking about a response to a motion for summary judgment. And instead, you're like all of a sudden talking about settlement, you know. And so I, I'm always amazed when our volunteers can just pivot, you know, and just run run with whatever the litigants want to talk about. What do you, what do you see? Yeah. On that note, I'd also like to have a, a desire to help and a desire and, mm-hmm. and compassion that, that empathy, um, I think really goes a long way to volunteers. And I think that goes with the listening. I think that goes with the adaptability as much as you plan for one thing, if something comes up and you want to solve that problem too, those are my favorite volunteers. And, um, I mean, all my volunteers are great. So they're professional, they're, they're prepared, um, they're willing to give their time. So those are all the qualities I look for when, when talking to potential new volunteers is, is those types of qualities as well. So how do you recruit your volunteers, Anthony? I'm going to just kind of talk about recruiting volunteers generally, and then I'll talk about specifically for me. As I like to view it as kind of like a target. There's people on the fringes that don't want to do pro bono work at all. Like you can't convince them no matter what. They don't think that it's a duty to do pro bono work. They don't have any desire to do pro bono work. They don't have time ever. And they're not going to make time for to do pro bono work. So those are those volunteers out there. And then you have those core volunteers, which are the volunteers that you love to have, which once they complete a pro bono case for you, they reach out to you and ask you for another one. I love finding those volunteers. And those volunteers tend to find me. It's who are we recruiting are the people in the middle. And that's a large people, people that need to be asked, people that need to be pushed into volunteering a little bit. I try not to bug my volunteers too much, but I think just telling them the opportunities and bugging them enough to to get them to volunteer. A lot of my volunteers that are busy, oh, I can't do it this month, so I'll reach out to them next month and things like that. It's, it's very rarely a no, I, I'm not gonna volunteer anymore. So how I actually recruit them is I'm trying to go to as many events as possible. I'm just saying MVL, MVL, MVL um, again and again. I think you have to say it seven times before someone will actually listen to you, but I'm willing to do that. And I'm just essentially searching for that middle group of people because I don't know. Meeting someone, I don't know where they are on this target, but I think they're in the, I'm, most of the people are in the middle, so I'm trying to find those people. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you? What do you think about your volunteers and recruiting recruiting them. Well, I love your target analogy. Um, I think with the appellate pro bono program, we have a 
an amazing middle group of volunteers. These are just dedicated, passionate, amazing volunteers. And they do a lot of the recruitment for kind of maybe that like middle ring Mm -hmm. um, type of folk. And I think that's so effective to have someone who is a volunteer in the program, very dedicated, asking, you know, like, just just do this little bit, you know, and when you see all that they're doing, you know, I think it would be pretty hard to say no to some of those folks. So I'm, I am so impressed with all of our volunteers, but that um, core group around the appellate pro bono is, is really inspiring. How do you deal with um, burnout with that core group? You know what? Luckily, I haven't had to deal with that yet, but it, it's something that's on my mind and that I worry about, you know, when uh, when a member had to take a break because of family issues, you know, another member really stepped in and was able to cover those responsibilities. But, you know, then I worry about that that member who stepped in, you know, he takes on so much. Um, I, I kind of laugh because I'm like, wait, you have another job? Like, <laughs> it seems like a Pella pro bono is what you do. So, yeah, I think, I think one thing with that group that gives me, makes me feel good about what's going on is it's a, it's a pretty large group, you know, it's not, we're not relying on three or four people, you know, there's probably a group of about 15 folks, you know, who can be tapped in in different ways. Um, And so I think that that, um, I think that's important. And I've seen, you know, the group really come around and support um, each other when there have been deaths in the family mm-hmm. or when there, you know, other things have come up, you know, and especially in this past year, that group has just really um, solidified, right, more than like fractioned and started to burn off. So that's been really just inspiring to see. Yeah, I like the idea of that understanding it. And I really love that your group kind of supports itself and recruits other people itself and things like that. It's a really self-sufficient group. I I really like that idea. Yeah, I must be like the most lucky (laughs) coordinator out there. Do you uh, deal with burnout with your volunteers and how do you deal with that? I see it. Um, I definitely uh, try not I'm very conscious of it when I'm ask, doing asks out to my core group of volunteers. Um, they're not the ones that get the emails um, every week as opposed to that middle group that I was talking about before. Those people all bug a little bit more because they need that, whereas I'll let these volunteers come to me and I try to be very conscious about that. Although I just went to the um, CBA picnic and one of the, those core volunteers was like, I haven't gotten an email from you in a bit. So I, I guess I'll have to give her a case here pretty soon. <laughs> That's great. What a good problem to have. <laughs> right. Um, so shifting the focus from volunteers to individuals um, and the individuals that we serve at our programs. So Mia, with your programs, why do people pursue like these pro se lawsuits? It feels like it's an uphill battle right from the get go. Yeah, Anthony, that's a great question. And I, I can't wait to get your perspective on it as well. From the Federal Pro Se Clinic, um, I think that people have a lot, for the most part, many of the litigants have a, they feel they've been wronged. They feel that their rights have been violated. They feel that they've been discriminated against. And in many cases, they have, you know, and so this is about vindicating their rights. And these are civil rights folks, right, and our employment discrimination folks, the, the lawsuit for many of them can take a very central role. I also see this with people with like consumer credit issues or any number, any number of issues where they really feel like there has been this deep violation of their rights. And in many cases they have, you know, whether it's been getting beat up by the police mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> like some, you know, really bad sales practices. Um, I don't, I don't pretend to understand the consumer credit, (laughs) you know, or, or fired from their school because of their accent and their national origin, you know? Mm. And um, I think that those types of cases cut really deep. I think that people who've been beat up by the police have post- post-traumatic stress around that and, you know, ongoing physical injuries around that and mental health issues around that. And no one will take their case, you know? And so they just feel like the door is being shut in their face every way they turn. And they know that something wrong has happened to them, you know? I think that they, they would do anything, you know, including file a federal lawsuit by themselves, you know, in, in the hope, in the wish that they could 
get their rights vindicated, you know? And for many of them, it isn't really about the money. I'm not saying they don't want the money. They do, sure. but it's, it's an apology is what they want. You know, some, some sense of, I see you, I see you as a human being. I see that you were wronged and I'm sorry. You know, that's, that's what most of them are looking for. Unfortunately, I don't think the legal system is a good place to get that. Um, but mo- many of them are very frustrated by the time that they get to us um, and they will do whatever they need to. And it, it's hard, you know, I bet. not every person with a righteous lawsuit has a good lawsuit. Right. And so attorneys aren't going to take these lawsuits because they can't make any money off of them. And that's a really sad reality of the system. What about you? I know you're seeing it totally different types of cases. Yeah. So it's family law. So why do people um, file for family laws? Because they want to get divorced or they want to get uh, parenting time orders. That's, that's a simple answer. But why do they do it by themselves? A lot of times people can't afford an attorney, especially if they're in my program, they definitely can't. Or they don't feel like they can afford an attorney or they don't know the options or they don't know the rights. And I think that's why even unbundling legal advice just to let them know what to expect and what what the heck maintenance is and what the heck parenting time is and what's decision making like people know custody people know alimony but they don't know they know child support but they don't know what it actually is i'll just echo that most of our litigants can't afford an attorney as well so i think it's a combination of the like vindication of rights and you know just being in a financial position where they can't afford an attorney or an attorney won't take their case. So. so who benefits most from your programs? Like who's the ideal clientele that you guys can help the most? Um, individuals who have the capacity to learn, um, particularly the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, you know, we have some folks who've learned that and, you know, they're they're experts on areas <laughs> of the law that like I don't know anything about. Um, and that's really incredible to see. I think those types of folks benefit probably the most from us. Um, We definitely see people who, you know, you're like, oh, go look at this rule. And that just like, it's not in their capacity to do that, you know? And so we definitely try to help everyone give, you know, wherever their range is um, an ability to kind of pursue the cases. But I think, you know, some people are, we could give them an appointment every day and they still wouldn't Sure. You know, they they just would really benefit from full representation. We have a few clients, we call them litigants, um, a few litigants who love it. Like they <laughs> have just loved this process. And one of them, um, I can't remember if he applied to law school or paralegal school, but I mean, like he is going for it. And he just thought this was the funnest process. And he liked like the gamesmanship of, you know, discovery and whatnot. Um, so, you know, there's the rare person like that who benefits. Um, and then I think also the people who can benefit the most are individuals who really do feel like every other door has been closed, you know, and they finally feel like with us, they've found um, a program, at least where we're going to listen. What about you? Um, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head a little bit because we do pro se consultations as well. So I think if you have that capacity, if you have that ability to understand what's, what this is and you just need um, the legal knowledge and the legal assistance, those people benefit a lot. Yeah. Or someone who um, has an upcoming hearing like right away or upcoming mediation right away. I think those people benefit a lot from my program because otherwise they're not getting any assistance at all. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, another reason is it, people that benefit that are capable, but they just don't know the process. Um, so just walking them through, hey, here's your initial status conference. You have to do this to set that. Here's mediation. This is how we can help you out with that. Here's this. This is how we can help you out with that. Um, because I've seen a lot of cases get closed because they're just not following the case management order or just not following the steps that they need to do mm-hmm. um, to get it through. So meeting with an attorney and getting an understanding of those steps, those cases don't get closed and people get divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big benefit from that. Do you think each of your litigants or clients would be better off with full representation or do you see any positives to a pro se? It's hard to say that there's positives to do pro se because we, as an attorney, because then it's like, what's the, what, what am I even doing? <laughs> um, but with that being said, I think there are some positives to, to doing things pro se. Um, similar to your guy, that paralegal student or something that just loves the process. 
But for a lot of our, my cases is we provide these consultations and these advice, and we're also providing empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's this person's first time. Um, they might have been beaten up by the system or they might have been beaten up by their partner or something, and this is their first time standing up for themselves. Um, and we can actually, by guiding them through this because they're capable, we're providing them empowerment. We're empowering them to represent themselves as best as possible. And I think there's a true benefit to that. And it's it's a little bit beyond necessarily the legal system as far as are they going to win more or, or lose more? Maybe, maybe not. But if you look at it holistically, I think there's a true benefit to to that. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you agree? Do you what are your thoughts on empowerment as a as a benefit to pro se? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that when litigants find out that they like actually can do something like file their first motion or respond to a motion to dismiss, right? Like that is really empowering, you know, and then, and then they win sometimes, you know, (laughs) and that's, that's so amazing, you know, for them to find out that they can do this. We also, and I think, again, this is going to be different than what, what you see, but we have some litigants where, they like may know from the beginning that they're probably not going to win. Maybe there's a statute of limitations issue or, you know, some, mm. some very real barrier to success. But for them, the process itself is really fulfilling in some way, you know, and um, I'm not sure that I really understand it. But, you know, I've, I've been on those calls where it's like, I don't care. Like, I'm still moving forward, you know, and, you know, moving forward in the right way and, you know, presenting things and you know, what they perceive as a, you know, very good presentation is, is important to them. And so I, I don't think people like that would be benefited by an attorney, you know, because we want it done the way that the rules say we, you know, we sure. wouldn't take that case. Um, and so there is, you know, I think there is benefit in some of those situations. I think, you know, you could say that's frivolous, you know, if you know that a statute of limitations has already been blown. So, you know, I see, I see both sides of it, but, um, you know, those people are getting something out of it. Yeah. And ethically, like we as attorneys couldn't take frivolous cases and things like that too. So, so giving them advice. Um, I also think, uh, sometimes telling someone legal advice, as far as you're, this isn't legally speaking, you can't win this case is a a big benefit to people Mm -hmm. as well. So that way they don't waste their time. Um, through the process. We have so many litigants in the federal pro se clinic who, you know, for whatever reason, want to be in federal court. And you're just like, that's, you know, this is an eviction, that state, like, go to the state. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, So in both my program and your program, we're dealing with um, pro se parties all the time. And I'm dealing with low income people. And you just said that you're dealing with low income people as well. So what are the... um, obstacles that you see when dealing with pro se parties? Oh man, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, I think that, you know, there's some logistical ones, like, do they have like a good, um, phone connection or a stable Mm -hmm. phone number so that I can actually like call them? Um, do they have internet access so that they can get documents if I send them to them? You know, when we, when we were in person, can they get to the clinic, you know? Um, so I think there's a, a host of logistical issues. I think with pro se is they're responsible for so much information and, you know, they have no training, they have no background. So, you know, some, I often will send an email with the federal rules of civil procedure, the local rules, the judges practice standards, you know, and like asking them to learn all of that (laughs) feels like, oh my gosh, it took me, you know, three years of law school. And I I don't actually don't know all of that still, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm constantly going back to the rules. So I think um, just that lack of, of, of education and knowledge base is huge. I think that pro se parties, um, not all of them, but some of them, you know, have other things going on, whether it's mental health or other issues that can make it really difficult, you know, to kind of see eye to eye with them. And, and that's hard because you definitely, you want to help them, you know, we always try to help them, um, but sometimes you're just not um, connecting, you know, and that can be really tough. It is tough. I always say it's a, it's a positive consultation if, if the applicant, we call them applicants um, for the most part, if the applicant remembers 40% of what I said, that's mm-hmm. like, 
this person's actually got it. You know, like they're on the right pace. They understood 40% of, of all the advice this last hour. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard. It's hard for pro se parties to understand because when fa- and family law deals with every aspect of your life. It deals with your mm-hmm. kids. It deals with your property. It deals with your debt. It deals with your partner. It deals with like every, your kids, every aspect of your life. Um, so it's very overwhelming for them. And it's, it's um, I think dealing with pro se parties that are dealing with all that by themselves and the law is very difficult. So it's hard to sometimes get through to them. I think dealing with pro se parties, or at least my, our applicants, is we are connecting with them. Um, I call them, I email them, I send them letters if they don't respond to either of those. Do they have access to Zoom? Can I send them up for a Zoom conference? <laughs> um, a lot of people thankfully have smartphones and they could do a lot of that stuff. Um, but a lot of people don't have printers and scanners. So we've moved from mailing letters to people to having them sign them, sign them digitally. Um, and that's been night and day as far as response rate. Yeah. So I think that's another issue that I'm dealing with. And then that stable phone number is so key. Yeah. Yeah. It can be tough <laughs> just getting a hold. It's, I was trying to explain to someone like, how, you know, how much of my day is just spent like with the back and forth with mm-hmm. calls with, you know, different litigants, like trying to schedule an appointment, like good take an hour itself just to <laughs> get it on the books. <laughs> so what about the positives? What are some positives of dealing with these pro se parties? Um, okay. So one, I would say the passion, like most of these are very passionate people who like really care about their case. And, you know, when they're trying to vindicate a right, you know, there's just so much passion there. So I love seeing that. I love seeing the learning that happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's like, even this, this sounds so silly, but I think it's actually like revolutionary. Once they realize, oh my gosh, maybe I could look at the rules to see if I can answer this, right? Like, that's huge. That's like, that learning is incredible. So um, the learning, and then I, I know that this has been like a theme throughout our conversation, but the empowerment, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you are dealing with people who come in often not knowing anything, you know, and then by the end or, you know, wherever their case goes, you know, they're negotiating for like <laughs> interrogatories and pre- uh, requests for production with like attorneys. And you're like, that's like, <laughs> that is so amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of good. I, you know, I love, I love working with pro se parties. Yeah. The, the biggest benefit to working with pro se parties that I've seen uh, are the empowerment that you mentioned. But another one is like being the first one to tell someone that you believe them. And mm. then there's it like, yeah, it just, oh, okay. And then, but then it's like, okay, I believe you. Here's what we can do about it. Um, mm-hmm. And and if you have that, okay, this person's not just walking me through the steps. It's the actual idea behind things. Um, yeah are the legal ideas behind this. Cause like you have a problem and you just address it as a problem. There's some problems have a, a legal answer to it and we can guide them through that. And that's great. Um, Cause people just sometimes need to think that they're not crazy, that they're not fighting this on their own. So I think yeah. that's what's great about helping out pro se parties. I think that's so important. I definitely think a lot of litigants come to us and feel very alone and not believed. And I think that there's immense good and just, you know, just being in their corner, you know, and um, supporting them, you know, helping them find the next right step, you know. All right, Mia. Well, this has been a great conversation, but before we, we conclude it here, let's, let's end on a positive note, although that was pretty positive answers just then. Um, so Mia, can you share with us a recent success story? Well, I would say that the bankruptcy clinic itself is a success story. Um, it was an idea that, you know, was a, was a sparkle um, before I started. And then when I started working with the federal pro se clinic, um, I had the opportunity along with uh, the previous managing attorney to really start like researching what are bankruptcy clinics, you know, around the country. And we talked to folks in Portland and Rhode Island and California 
Virginia and um, really saw the full range of what people are doing and then got to figure out what what's going to work here, you know, and finally getting to the point where we brought Matt on, you know, and mm-hmm. have clients, you know, there are litigants who come in and Matt helps them. Um, you know, he loves working with individuals who haven't filed the petition yet. So are just like right at the start of the case, you know, because that's where an hour consultation with him can do a lot of good, you know? And so um, he's had, I believe over 40 appointments at this point in time. Um, and I would say that's a huge success. <laughs> yeah, starting from the ground up is for sure a big success, so. What about you, what's a success story? So my favorite success story, and this was um, when one of our relatively first applicants that we had come through is a uh, army veteran and we helped her on five different occasions all unbundled all consultations and the first one's like oh we have this mediation so how do I set that up so we helped her set that up and then how do I prepare for that so we helped her prepare for that okay now we come to an agreement what do I do next and the court still wanted to have a hearing for the for the for the other issues. And so they had the hearing, but then they're like, okay, we're going to approve of this agreement. And she couldn't file it because she didn't have a printer or scanner or anything. And with the courts, like they wouldn't, um, their courts were closed. So she couldn't get like a copy of it to sign. Um, And that was the court order was to sign it. So one of my volunteers, I met with her and realized what the actual issue was, uh, entered a limited entry of appearance, downloaded a copy of it, had her sign it, filed it, withdrew, took two hours of the attorney's time, made a world of difference for her because she couldn't complete her case. And it was just a night and day experience for, for that. And that's what Family Law Bundle can be, is, is these consultations were helping each step of the way, doing a limited, little limited scope of representation, and that makes a world of difference for our, for our applicants, for our clients. That's a great story. So we at Stairway to ATJ would like to thank our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stairway to ATJ. And be sure to check out the other CBA podcasts, including the Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Getting Legal with It. If you have an ATJ subject that you would like us to cover on this show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Anthony Pereira. Stay healthy and be good to each other out there. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us. Mm-hmm.